All right. If you have your Bibles, open them up to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3. It is a joy to be with you today. I spoke this morning at a church over in Mesquite, Texas. And I was able to make it all the way in. And on the way over here, I had uh, told Emilio I downloaded my sermon from sermons.com. I absolutely love your church. I love Emilio and Trish, and uh, they're very dear to my heart, Uh, Josh and Jelena as well. We were uh, neighbors for many years over in Southern California. We were always barbecuing. Well, they were barbecuing. I was freeloading, and I appreciated that. All right, Exodus chapter 3, let's go ahead and pray. Father, it's our desire that we would see you in a more clear fashion by the time we're done here than we do right now. And we, we've come to trust and realize that it's not by our merit, not by us trying to conjure something up in the flesh, but solely trusting you, trusting that you have an appointment with us more than we have an appointment with you. We wish to see you more clearly and know you more intimately. And once again, uh, the cry of my heart is that we would know you and your word in a clearer fashion by the time we leave this room than we did when we walked in. We do sanctify this room in the name of Jesus Christ. We set it aside, we set it apart for a holy work, grab a hold of our wandering thoughts, our minds that seem to be racing and caring and worrying about tomorrow or sin that we did yesterday. We pause, we sit on our hands, and we look to you who is invisible. Give us ears to hear the inaudible and eyes to see the invisible that we may be partakers of what you've prepared for us today. So do whatever it takes to receive the greatest amount of glory, and no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much we kick and scream, we pray that you would perform surgery on us here today, this afternoon. And I thank you that I have what I've asked as I prayed according to your will, simply wishing to see you and to make you known. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Exodus chapter 3, starting in verse 6. It says, Moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look upon God. And the Lord said, I have surely seen the oppression of my people who are in Egypt, and have heard their cry because of their taskmasters, for I know their sorrows. So I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians, and to bring them up from the land to a good and a large land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. Verse 9. And now therefore, behold, the cry of the children of Israel has come to me, and I have seen the oppression with which the Egyptians oppress them. Come now, therefore, and I will send you to Pharaoh, that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. But Moses said to God, in verse 11, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, and that I should bring the children of Israel out of Egypt? So he said, I will certainly be with you, and this shall be a sign to you that I have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall serve God on this mountain. 
Then Moses said to God, Indeed, when I come to the children of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they say to me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. Moreover, God said to Moses, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, The Lord God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob, has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this is my memorial to all generations. I'm reminded of something that John Piper said recently. He said, You don't have your life before you, it's not yours. You are bought with a price, and before you is a stewardship for the owner. Jim Elliott said, why do you need a voice when you have a verse? A lot of times people say, I'm willing to go into the highways, byways, and getaways, willing to go into the 1040 window should God call me to go. I'm willing to go door to door or out into the mission field if God provokes me, speaks to me. Instead, we should be saying, I'm going, but I'm willing to stay. I'm willing to stay. In the meantime, I'm going to go across the street, and I'm going to talk to my neighbors. Justin Peters, great man of God, he said, if you want God to speak to you, read God's word. If you want God to speak to you out loud, well, then read God's word out loud. See, this is God's marching orders for us. You want to know the will of God? It's found within these pages from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21. Everything we need to know about God is found right here. Not everything we perhaps want to know about God, but everything you'll ever need to know about God and His will for your life is found within this sacred text. You know, there's an interesting story that follows the life of Charlton Heston when he was filming the movie Ben-Hur. There's an exciting chariot race. You may be familiar with it towards the end of the movie. Well, it was reported that he had great difficulty maneuvering the chariot, so much so that he went to the director, Cecil B. DeMille, and he said, listen, I think I can drive the chariot. I guess that's pretty good news. The problem is I don't think I can win the race, to which DeMille, the director, said, You see to it that you stay in the race. I'll see to it that you win. And so it is with the director of our lives, but the analogy, as all illustrations do, falls short. The director of our life will complete the work which he started. You know, I read a lot of books, and the very first thing I do is read the last chapter. If I rent a movie, I watch the last chapter of the movie. It's something that I do because I like to see what I'm getting myself into. You have a joke to tell me? Tell me the punchline first. And so I've read the Word of God, and I've seen God wins. It's it. It's over. In fact, the Apostle Paul says in Romans chapter 8 that we are more than conquerors. We are more than conquerors. And the amazing thing about that is some of us don't even realize that we are in a battle, that we're in a fight. And greater is he that is in us than he that is in the world. Today is all we have. Consider these words from James McDonald. He said, Today is not a rehearsal for anything. Today is your life. It's who you are and where you're headed today. 
The person you will be is the person you are becoming today. So don't waste it. The challenge you face today is your chance to conquer, so don't miss it. The fear you feel today is your chance to be strong in the Lord, so grab it. The tempest all around is driving you out of the storm and onto your knees, so don't fight it. Today matters more than you know. You don't know if you'll have tomorrow, so stop the excuses. No more delays today. He asks you to put yesterday behind because it can't change today. He asks you to forget about tomorrow because it only cares for itself, not today. Today is all that matters. This is your life. It's happening right now, today. The title of this message is No More Excuses. I'm filled with excuses, reasonings why I can't do what God has called me to do, whether that's to be the man in my wife's life, or to be the father in my kid's life, or to be the employee in my employer's life, or to be the evangelist that he's calling me to do, or to do evangelism out on the street. I've got a million and one reasons why I can't do it, why I'm not the guy for the job. And as we look at Exodus chapter 2 through 4, we're going to look at the life of Moses, God's servant. And God's dealing specifically with Moses with his command to go before Pharaoh and the Jewish elders. And how Moses had an excuse, he would call it a reason, a reason after a reason why he's not the guy or why you might not be the gal for the job to do what God has called you to do. As Emilio said, I teach evangelism. I teach evangelism and apologetics. There's some seven different types of apologetics. My absolute favorite is presuppositional apologetics. And I teach evangelism. And I think that there's a very good balance between evangelism and apologetics. Greg Bonson said, it's not our job to open people's hearts. It's our job to close their mouths. And with the proper balance of the law of God and apologetics, that's exactly what will happen. Their mouths will be shut. John MacArthur said, effective evangelism depends on the faithful proclamation of the word. God will prepare the soil and bring forth the fruit. We must be faithful to plant the seed. So what is evangelism? Evangelism is sharing the gospel, not good views, but good news, the death, burial, and resurrection with somebody out on the street, maybe inside your own household. Whether they get saved or not is irrelevant. If they become born again or if they reject your message, it doesn't matter because salvation belongs to God. Salvation belongs to Him. We have to be faithful to the call. And if we're faithful, we will be fruitful. Don't mistake the two. If you want to be faithful to what God's called you to do, don't worry about people getting born again. If you're faithful with the message and you don't deter from it, then you are doing what is required of you. G. Kimball Morgan said to call a man evangelical who is not evangelistic is an utter contradiction. But the problem is we're not very good at it, and we're filled with reasonings or excuses why we don't do it. You know, not too long ago, I wanted to take my uh, oldest girl, Ella, to a nice restaurant, so I wanted to step it up a notch, so I took her to Wendy's. And as I was there ordering Frosties and French fries, I noticed that there were quite a few kids, you know, in their early 20s, dressed up in suits and dresses. And I had inquired, why are you guys all dressed up? 
And come to find out, they were part of a mock trial epidactic debate team. And I said, oh, that's interesting. So you guys are coming or going? And I said, well, we just came back. We mopped the floor with them. And I went, oh, wow, interesting. So you like to debate. Oh, good. That, that's, that's good. So I went, grabbed my Frosty, went and sat down. And it didn't take too long before one of them had blasphemed really loud. And my girl, Ella, said, Dad, you got to go share with them. And I said, honey, submit in silence. I go, honey, listen, I, I really just want to hang out with you. Daddy, you know, it's, it's a real special time. And she goes, Dad, you need to go share with them. And I said, honey, I don't have enough tracks. And she pulls out a stack of tracks that she has. So I ended up making my way over to them. And I said, my little girl, Ella, she wa- <laughs> Honey, what are you doing under there? And so she was, hiding under the table because she was afraid of the dialogue that I was about ready to get in. And I said, honey, you have room for daddy? And that's really how I felt. I wanted to go back into my shell because I did not want to engage into a discussion. Even though I have a lot of answers to a lot of questions that are being asked, I really enjoy going to the universities. Recently, we went to UC Berkeley. We set up a microphone out in the crowd. I have a microphone on, and we're filming it for our TV show. And I said, ladies and gentlemen, I'm a Christian. I'm unashamed to be called a Christian. I believe that Christianity alone can attest for truth. I believe every other worldview has painted itself into a corner and has bought the lie. I believe that Christianity answers the most difficult questions that have plagued humanity since its inception. Why am I here? What's the meaning of life? What's going to happen to me when I die? Christianity is true. Every other worldview is false. Does anybody have any questions? And I was nervous, as I was when I did it at UCLA. I was nervous. Why? I'm coming up against, and I'm opening up the microphone for students and professors alike to challenge me, whether it's Darwinian evolution, whether it's philosophy, whether it's something dealing with my worldview, and I don't have all the answers. But I'm not afraid to confront them. And the reason why, even though many of them are a lot smarter than I am, is just because I'm right. I've got the truth. And if they ask me a question I don't have an answer for, I just simply say, I don't have a clue. Go Google it. You want me to Google that for you? I mean, you got time? There's no such thing as a cool Christian. You cannot impress people with Jesus when you're trying to impress them with yourself. And I've just realized I'm just kind of done trying to make a name for myself. I like how Jesus started his ministry when John the Baptist ended his, when his head was on the platter. When I'm done with my own ministry, trying to make a name for myself, really, not that John the Baptist was doing that. He served the purpose for which he was created. But you know what I mean in the metaphoric sense, that God has created us to be dead people. Dead to us, but alive to him. We must decrease, and he must increase. Addison Leach said, When the will of God crosses the will of man, one of these wills needs to die. But God's not going anywhere. That's interesting. Well, I went over to these girls and these guys, and I handed them tracks, part of the debate team. And right when I was about ready to leave, I said, uh, I'm just curious, which one of you is... Uh, the best debater. I said, oh, that would be Dakota. 
and there was a female there, and I said, Our, I, hey guys, I have a, a cool little thing we can do if you're up to it. Uh, let's have a mock trial. I'll be the prosecuting attorney, you be the defense attorney, and the rest of you can be the jury. And you can decide how this goes. This is the, my limit, this is my terms rather. I, I want you to not be a Christian. You can't be a Christian, otherwise I have to talk to somebody else. And she says, oh, I'm not, I'm an atheist. And I said, perfect. Okay, well, here we go. And I asked a series of questions, six to eight questions that I typically like to ask atheists that are unanswerable. Uh, if you're familiar with the DVD, How to Answer the Fool, some of them are answered inside there. Cy Ten Bruggenkate, uh, a presuppositionalist that is from Denmark that lives up in Ontario, up in Canada. He has kind of brought this down into layman's terms, and he's kind of helped me out quite a bit. And I did that with her, and as I did over at UC Berkeley and USC and the like. But if you were to look at the conversation that I had with Dakota and the jury looking in, you would think that it was not very fruitful. Because when everything was all said and done, the jury just kind of walked out. They didn't want to give their opinion. And I know why they didn't want to give their opinion. Because the worldview of their Pope, Et, that was standing there before them, had utterly failed and was painted into a corner. But that's really not my desire to do that. I, I desire to demonstrate that their worldview is foolish, but I want to do it with meekness. I want to do it in love, because, but by the grace of God, there goes I with my foolish ways. And God had enough mercy and grace in my life, enough kindness and love, that he would stoop down and reach into the dark cavern of my heart and do the one thing for me that I couldn't do for myself, and that was make me right with him, and I had nothing to do with it. And God had everything to do with it. And I trust that when I go out and share, as I did with Dakota and those other people, that God's word is not going to return void. It's sharp and powerful, according to Hebrews 4.12. It won't return void. It's going to slice them to asunder. It is going to accomplish his will. Well, we're not very good. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 8, God states his purpose to Moses, and he says these inspired words. I have come down to deliver them out of the hand of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of the land to a good and a broad land, to a land flowing with milk and honey. And according to Exodus 2.24, God's resolve to deliver Israel was based solely upon one thing. It says, God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. So what Moses is supposed to understand here, that what's at stake in the deliverance of the children of Israel as Moses goes forth is God's name is on the line, not man's name. God's fame is on the line. God's glory is on the line because God's covenant has been made. You see, Moses, it's not about you and it's not about us so that we can never pat ourselves on the back, so that we can never go out and say, look what great things God did. Well, through me. Look at me. Wow. Wow is me. No, it's woe is me, but wow is him. You see, everything is about him. Everything points back to him as all things work together for him. God is in heaven and he does what he pleases, the psalmist said. Hudson Taylor said, all of God's giants that have been used down through the ages have been weak men who did great things for God because they simply believed that God would be with them. I have come down to deliver them. Now God looks for the person who's made himself available. 
The best ability is availability. That doesn't excuse your way out of not studying. You need to study to show yourself approved, but making yourself available is key. It's at the foremost. It's get into the batter's box and see what he can do as you point to what he has done on that Roman gibbet 2,000 years ago. So Moses is about to find himself shipwrecked on providence, stranded on omnipotence, and the thing is this. He doesn't even realize it. As he offers his reason, his excuse after excuse, why he can't do and be the person who God's called him to be and do the thing that God's called him to do. I have a gift for you, Moses. I'm going to give you a part of my deliverance, the lead role under me, and don't worry. I want you to always remember verse 8 as you go. I have come down to deliver them. John Stott, he said to evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. To evangelize does not mean to win converts, but simply to announce the good news irrespective of the results. And in chapter 3, verse 11, Moses says to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the sons of Israel out of Egypt? In other words, God, hey, listen, in comparison to Pharaoh, I'm a worm. And Pharaoh is a mountain. And can a worm say to a mountain, be removed, cast into the sea? Come on. You work supernaturally, naturally in a lot of ways, and I don't see that I'm really the guy for the job. I see God pausing, perhaps, to give Moses a chance to change his mind. But if we can see what God says between the lines, we can see God say, you're right, Mo. You are a worm. You're right. Pharaoh is a mountain. That's the way I've designed it to be. Because if you were a mountain and he was a worm, it would be no big deal. But it's always been a big deal for God to do what he wants to do, whenever he wants to do it, through whomever he wants to do it, to whomever he wants to do it. He answers to no one, and that's the glorious thing that God has when he deals with salvation and sovereignty, that God does whatever he wants, whomever he wants, to whomever he wants, and he answers to no one, and he doesn't care what you think. And now Moses, here he is, standing before God, and he says, look, I'm not the guy for the job because I'm a worm. And God were to say, listen, I choose to use the foolishness of preaching to save people. I choose to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. It's always been like that, and it'll always be like that. So you're absolutely right. You're a worm. Pharaoh is a mountain. But why should that stop you from going down there and leading my people out of Egypt? Remember verse 8, I have come down to deliver them. I will be with you. I will take care of that mountain, throw it into the Red Sea, and my little worm will walk through the ocean on dry land. It's not about you, it's about him. Why? Because it's always been about God's glory. It's always been about his name, his fame, for his covenant. That's why God chooses to use you, which is a wretch. You fail because you're frail. You'll always do that. You'll continually sin to the day you die. And God shows himself strong on behalf of the person who looks to him away from himself. Because that's how glorious and awesome our God is. So Moses is red-faced. 
and he tries something that millions have tried since in the guise of humility. He tries to excuse himself from the task because he's put his eyes on himself. You're right, you're small and weak, but wrong, Moses, that's no excuse to cop out. Why not? Because God said he's going to be with us. Because God said he's going to go before us. That's the amazing thing about our shield. In verse 13, Moses shows he's on the right track, at least temporarily. This is what he says. He says, okay, when I go, when I go down there to the people, what name for you shall I use? That's right, Moses. Everything hinges upon that. Everything hinges upon who God is. Who is this one that is pushing me out into the harvest? That's right. Get to know your God. Somebody once said, hey, can you uh, talk about God for six hours and never repeat yourself? Well, I don't know if I could talk about God for six hours. Well, if you're a plumber, do you think you could talk about plumbing for six hours and never repeat yourself? Well, sure. Why is that? Because I'm so engulfed in my profession. I know so many intricacies, so many details, so many rabbit trails about my profession that I could actually talk about my profession for 24 hours. You'd be bored to tears, but I could do it. Make your profession one of knowing him and making him known. His thoughts for us outnumber the sand of the sea. So Moses is red-faced. He moves on. That's right, Moses. Everything hangs on who I am. It's not who am I, but who is God? You're on the right track. And God says to Moses in verse 14, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And I think at the bare minimum, if we were to examine that, we can see God saying, listen, I am who I am. Nobody determines my character. I'm not becoming. I've always been without beginning, without end, never fickle, never manipulated. This is what it means to be God. And when the great I am is sending you forth into the harvest to do a task, you can be rest assured he's going to accomplish the task that he wants to do. Tell the Israelites to be confident. So God's rehearsing for Moses how it's going to go. Moses begins to shake in his Birkenstocks, and he begins to think to himself, oh, my stars, God really means this. I'm going to go before Pharaoh. They don't know me from Adam, and I'm going to share a word, and they are going to respond to this in the affirmative? Yeah, that's right. How amazing is that? Yet Moses continues on with his excuses. This is what he says in chapter 4, verse 1. But look, they will not believe me, nor will they listen to my voice, for they will say the Lord did not appear to you. Now, you know what I would have said if I was God? I probably would have said, are you calling me a liar? I just said in verse 8 that they're going to hearken. In fact, when you go forth, you're going to come back with the booty of the land. And now you're saying that they're not going to listen to you? You know, there's no greater insult you can actually give someone than to say, hey, I don't trust you. If I were to ask you, hey, what's your name? You say, it's Jerry. I go, hey, Jerry, what do you do for a job? I'm a plumber. Where do you live? I live over there. I said, I don't believe you. You're devious. That's not your name. What do you really do for a job? What are you hiding from me? Now, you would be insulted if I didn't trust you at something as simple as that. But guess what? Everything is simple to God. 
When he says, I'm going to be with you, that's simple. When he says, I'm going to provide for all your needs, it's simple to him. It is very simple. But yet, what do we do with the promises of God? We highlight them, different colors perhaps. We might even underline them, might even pull out a ruler. But no way I'm going to claim it. It's convicting. I'm convicted. What do you do with the promises of God that are all yes and amen? Lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. You know, one thing that I've chosen to do inside my life is never to worry, never to freak out about finances. Why? Because I've read the promise that he shall supply all my needs according to his riches in Christ Jesus. So while other people are freaking out, I go over to this scripture that says that, and I go, huh, well, I'm not going to worry. Well, it's easy for you to say, well, no, listen, it is easy for you to say as well because we have the promises of God. And all of the promises of God are highlighted by God and is a megaphone to us. How awesome is our God? So in other words, Moses, listen, your excuse is oriented in your inability to persuade. And again, my answer is the same. All right, so you don't have much credibility in Egypt, but it's not about you. It's about me. And this is why I have permission to go before my unsaved brothers to be able to share. Where they've seen things, they've seen me do things that I should never have done, even after I became a Christian. Somebody once said, a pastor at that, before I became a Christian, I deserved hell. After I became a Christian, I deserved hell ten times over. And my friends and my family have seen the things that I've done. Sure, not the things done in darkness that are shameful and despiseful and, and disgraceful and disgusting, but they've seen where I've been. They've seen what I've done. So it becomes all the more harder when I try to preach to them. But it shouldn't. All I've got to do is humble myself. God resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. And I come clean, and when I blow it, and I will, because I am a big blow it, I simply say, hey, I blew it. Yeah, I messed up. My kids see my failure time and time again. And I'm amazed. I go up to them and I say, hey, I blew it. I'm sorry. Will you forgive me? Oh, yeah, sure, absolutely. And they don't think twice about it. But yet here I am camping out on it. And God says, they will hearken to your voice. So Moses gives one last excuse why he should not go speak to Israel and Pharaoh, or in our case, why we can't go share with our neighbor or with our family member. In chapter 4, verse 10, he says, Please, Lord, I'm not a man of words, neither formally nor since thou hast spoken to thy servant, but my mouth and my tongue are heavy. Does that sound familiar? I think we're all described here to some degree. We say, hey, I'm not as eloquent as him. I'm not as eloquent as that guy. He's got one-third of the New Testament memorized. Man, that guy's got the praise-up approach down. It makes sense that you would use him. You wouldn't use me. You know who's made my bed? You know where I've been? You know the things that I've seen and the lies I've read? And we begin to become so introspective, and we think that it has something to do with us. When in reality, it has everything to do with him. So here's Moses. He's saying, God, I believe that you can grab a hold of somebody who's not eloquent, and you can make him eloquent. And in fact, I don't know if you caught this as I read this, but Moses threw out a litmus test to God. He says, listen, I understand that you can make somebody who's not very persuasive in his speech, and you can make him very persuasive in his speech, but since I've been talking to you, neither formally nor since, this is what it says, nothing has changed. 
I'm still a basket case. I'm still stumbling over my words. So what did he think? God, I know you can make somebody persuasive and eloquent, but I'm still like this. Do you not see what I see? As I look into the mirror, as I hear my own voice, do you not see what I see? So now what's Moses' problem? His excuse is that he thinks that only God only uses persuasive and eloquent people. And God's saying, listen, Moses, there's no rehearsal of the lines at this point. There's only a promise. But I want you to remember who's giving you this promise. It's the one who cannot lie. It's the one who is from all of times past and who will be all the way into the future. And Moses says, I don't feel any more like a man of words than when you met me at the burning bush. If you want me to be your spokesman, you got to make me eloquent. Prove to me ahead of time that I'm not going to stumble over my words. Well, the question for you and I is, what's wrong with stumbling over your words? What's wrong with that? You got a speech impediment? I went to speech classes for many years because I had my tongue cut in half when I was a little boy. And I had to learn to speak all over again. I can show you the scar, but it's very gnarly. I'll show Emilio later. But God chooses to use the foolish things of the world to confound the wise. And he will always do that so that you nor I will pat ourselves on the back. And so, in God's great patience, and to make it perfectly clear that he does not demand blind faith, God answers Moses with a reason that ends all of Moses' objections. Catch this. Watch this. He says in verse 11, Then the Lord said to him, Who made man's mouth? Who makes him dumb or deaf or seen or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? I think the first thing this means is simply this. Moses, the God who's met you at the burning bush, who's made you all these promises of success and wills to grant you a share in the glorious deliverance of the children of Israel, this God is the creator of the world. He's the inventor of the human body. He's made it up out of nothing. This very one who's made you, who made the human body, who made the mind and the emotions, he thought it up all out of nothing and designed it, but that's not all. The most amazing, the most devastating, yet the most reassuring thing comes next. Not only did God create every man, woman, and child exactly the way he wants them to be, but he continues to create every man, woman, and child exactly the way he wants them to be whether dumb or deaf or blind or seen or autistic or have no arms or no way to be able to speak English, God has made you. You are fearfully and wonderfully made exactly the way God wants you to be. And he's made the opponent to Christianity the same. So when you go before God and say, who am I? Look, I'm but a mouse before all these giants. I can't do this. I'm a worm in front of this mountain. You're saying you don't trust God. You call God a liar. Sure, it'd never come out of our lips. But really, that's what's permeating through the conch of our heart. And we need to stop it. Honestly, quite frankly, God is the creator. He made man's mouth. His providence rules over all things. Ultimately, he's the one who makes every man, woman, and child the way he sees fit. 
And to drive that home, in John chapter 9, we have the story of the man born blind. And the question was asked, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Why is this man blind? And Jesus said, neither. But that the works of God, that the glory of God might be made manifest through this man, this man is like that for such a time as this. How amazing and awesome is that? That God has made us and created us within this timing and place of the boundary of our habitation so that we might grope for him, might yearn for him, in order that we might reach out to others because of him. It's always about him. So here's God's last argument to Moses' last excuse. If it's not enough to hear me say that I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, if it's not enough to see a bush burn and not be consumed, if it's not enough to hear me say that I'm going to be with you, if it's not enough to know me as I am who I am, and to hear me say that I will bring you up out of affliction, if it's not enough, Moses, to see me turn a rod into a snake and make a hand leprous and clean, then listen to this, Moses. I made and I control everything, everything, every tick of the clock, every step that you take, every hair particle being ported in that way, I'm in control of it all. I know you're rising up. I know you're sitting down. I know your thoughts from afar. I know your thoughts that are afar. When you think that nobody understands what you're going through, I understand everything about you. I know all your problems, all your excuses. I know everywhere you've been. And I said, you are the guy, the gal for the job. And yet we cowered away. And God is patient with us. That's remarkable. And I say, thank you, Lord. No rehearsals, Moses, just the promise. But remember who gives you the promise. It's the one who cannot lie. And then ultimately... This brings us to the scariest verse in this chapter, which seems like a mirrored reflection of my own life. In chapter 4, verse 13, but Moses said, please, Lord, send, I pray, some other person. Put it in the heart of Josh Wright. Put it in the heart of Emilio. Saiten Bruggenkate, is that how you pronounce it? I don't, put it in the heart of somebody else. Here am I, Lord, but send him. I'm not the guy, the gal for the job. I can't do this. And this is what Moses says. Look, pray. I pray, Lord, send somebody else. I'm not going to do it. How insulting to God who made man's mouth, who performs these miracles. He's not a magician. Everything God does is wondrous and miraculous. God is in heaven. He does what he pleases. And he says, I'm going to use little old you. I think the beautiful thing about that is in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 10, it says that God created us for good works before he created this thing called time that you and I are handcuffed to. He created us for a work, and he never asked our opinion of that work. And now he says, don't freak out and fret about that work, but walk in that work. Be a vessel of honor, one of righteousness. Walk in that work. Open up your mouth as you ought. And I'm going to be with you. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And yet we sit by a pool reading the good book. Not all of us. Okay, all of us. 
at some time or another. We don't serve God to gain his, his acceptance. We are accepted, therefore we serve God. I'm not trying to get brownie points with God by evangelizing, by open-air preaching. Any brownie point I'll ever get is based upon what Christ did 2,000 years ago. But yet there's a calling on our lives, and that calling is to go forward, get off our hands, get up from the chair. He knows the rising up and the sitting down, but he tells you to go. And lo, I'm with you always. So Moses doesn't offer any more excuses. He simply refuses to accept the call from God. Why? That's what we started off with. And I think we can answer it now. It's because he didn't trust God. That's it. He didn't trust him. He didn't trust God's promises. Didn't trust the miracles that were being performed through God. Through his own hand even. He didn't trust him. Remember, every objection Moses raised, God answered. He answered by revealing his intention to bless Moses tremendously in the deliverance of Israel and by revealing a sovereign power so great that absolutely no obstacle could hinder the accomplishment of what Moses was called to. So the answer to why Moses refused to go under God's terms is simple. He didn't trust him. So finally, in verse 14, the Bible says that God got angry. There's hardly a greater insult you can pay to someone than to say, I don't trust you. There's no way. Lying lips are an abomination to God. No liar will inherit the kingdom of God. There are certain things that God detests, and almost half of those deal with lying. If God be for us, who can be against us? So there's no fruit. There is fruit if you are faithful. If you are faithful to open up your mouth as you ought, that's all that mattered. And where does faith come from? According to the Apostle Paul, faith comes by hearing the Word of God. It comes from seeing who He is and the promises He's made in the Word of God. God is for us. We need to look past our clumsy tongue. Well, Moses finally, eventually, learned his lesson. When? When he crossed over to the Red Sea and he sings a song of deliverance and he raises up the altar and he serves God, he worships God, beautiful. The problem is he waited till he got to the other side. The metaphor is, are you going to wait till you get to the other side before you trust God, before you lift your hands and worship to God and say, God, <laughs> it was really all about you, wasn't it? And I blew it. I sat on my hands and I was filled with excuses. I had reason after reason and they were great reasonings why I wasn't going to go and rise up to the task. And God were to say, it's just that, an excuse. Come clean with that sin and move forward. And when we're standing in glory and we're looking over life's finished story, I want it to be said of us that we were spent for his namesake. When we cross the finish line and we collapse into the arms of him who is our prize, of him who is our rest, it could be said, I did everything that was required of me that he created for me in that work. Now, I'm convicted, and you're sitting in and through a message that is designed and destined for my ears. And I'm ashamed because I know I'm not the man that I should be. 
the father I should be, the evangelist I should be. Because I'm filled with excuse after excuse after excuse, and I have to come clean, and I'm coming clean before you all that I, I don't want to be like that. I want to cross the finish line, and I don't know when that finish line is coming, but I'm coming 100 miles towards it, 100 miles per hour towards it. And yet so are you. As we pass from time on into eternity, I want it to be said of us that we trusted God and we walked in the work that he created for us. Worthy is the lamb to receive the reward of his suffering. We say it and now we need to live it. So, it's almost over. The world does all it can to live and not die. But Scripture tells us if we want to live, then we must die. Remember Piper when he said, you don't have your life before you, it's not yours. You were bought with a price. Before you is a stewardship for the owner. Galatians 5.24 says, and those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. George MacDonald said, if we do not die to ourselves, we cannot live to God, and he that does not live to God is dead already. I don't want to be like that. I don't want you to be like that. And I've chosen to surround myself with friends that are not like that, people that are the most spiritual, God-loving, God-fearing people I know, yet they're blow-its. They're a bunch of mucks. They're just like me. Yeah, we are a people who don't become so introspective where we look at ourselves and we don't leave the mirror. We have to get past that. We have to graduate from that. We have to dive down deep into the Word, and we have to know God to make Him known. If anyone would come after me, he says in Matthew 16, let him deny himself. Let him take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and he forfeits his soul? Or what shall a man give in return for his soul? Life is almost over, guys. Martin Luther said God creates out of nothing, and until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. And I'll leave you with this final thought. Our untamable God is unhindered, and he's thrusting forward in an unstoppable church. I read a quote this morning at the, this other church that I was speaking at, and it was by William Booth. And it's one for me, but I'm going to allow you to sit through it. He said, not called, did you say? Not heard the call. I think you should say. Put your ear down to the Bible and hear him bid you to go and pull sinners out of the fire of sin. Pull your ear down to the burden and agonized heart of humanity and listen to its pitiful wail for help. Go stand by the gates of hell and hear the damned entreat you to go to their father's house and bid their brothers and sisters and servants and masters not to come there. Then look Christ in the face whose mercy you have professed to obey and tell him whether you will hear and join heart and soul, body and circumstances 
in the march to publish his mercy to the world. Wow. I'm not condemned, but I'm convicted. It's a good conviction. Conviction means God loves me just the way I am, but he loves me too much to keep me that way. Repentance is a sweet thing. It means that I'm going to turn closer towards him. I'm going right towards him. As the shortest distance between two places is a straight line, and the greatest way to do that is through repentance. To come clean. Sure, I'm not doing what I should be doing or what I've always done and maybe the time's past, but right now, the only thing I have is today. As George MacDonald said earlier in the sermon, today, it's all we got. We're going to forget about yesterday. We're not going to worry about tomorrow. But today, I'm going to worship my God. I'm going to dance before him. I'm going to sing before him. I'm going to, as I've been enlisted in this army, I'm going to show up and receive my marching call. I've been enlisted. He's counted me faithful. He's put me into this battle. Even when I'm faithless, he's faithful, and he's going to accomplish the work which he's, what, that he wants to do. Robert Murray McCheon, he said, Oh, brethren, be wise. Why do you stand idle all the day? In a little moment, it's all going to be over. In a little while, and the day of grace will be over. All the preaching, all the praying, it'll soon be done. In a little while, we shall stand before the great white throne. In a little while, the wicked shall not be. We shall see them going away into everlasting punishment. In a little while, the work of eternity shall be begun. We shall be like him. We shall see him day and night in his temple. And we shall sing the new song without sin, without weariness, forever and ever and ever. I heard a preacher once say, when you're done, stop. Well, I'm done. And I'm told that I have another 12 minutes. I want you to realize that Christianity is not about you. It's about him. Come clean with that. He didn't save you because he found something great and glorious inside of you. He saved you for his namesake so that you can't pat yourself on the back so that you don't come to the place where you say, huh, look what I did. No, it'll always be about what he did. Now open up your mouth, and he will accomplish great things. Let's pray. Father, I pray that no matter how much it hurts, no matter how much we kick and scream, we would never be out of your will. Do what you want to do, as long as you want to do it, to whomever you want to do it, even as uncomfortable as it might be. So, Lord, we lay before you our, our cancer, our hardship, our family, our jobs, our finances, and we say do what you got to do, whatever that is. Do whatever it takes to receive the greatest amount of glory due to your name. You have permission, God, not that you need it. But we come before you, and we say thank you, God. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for the resurrection. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.